0: The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org.
1: The scripture reading for today comes from Matthew five twenty-seven through thirty. And again, the scriptures for today, Matthew five twenty-seven through thirty cut it out, and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Hey, Park Church. I hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park. I'm excited to get into this passage with you all. Um, Before we do, a couple of things. Uh, First of all, I just want to say I miss you all. I miss worshiping here in this building with you. I miss being with you, seeing you face to face. And so we're praying for you even today uh, as you're scattered around the city uh, that God would meet you in powerful ways. Also, I'm just really encouraged by the way that you all, as a church, are really being the church, even in this season, showing the love and the generosity of God to one another, watching needs being met in our church family, but also. Through our church family, the way you've shown generosity to the city, to individuals and organizations, I just want to say well done. We're so grateful uh, for you all. I'm praying that God would meet you, continue to meet you in powerful ways. Um, also, someone asked us last week on Mother's Day, they said, hey, did you take a break in the Gospel of Matthew because you didn't want to preach about lust or about divorce on Mother's Day? And the simple answer to that is, totally, Uh, 100%. That's exactly what we did. Super insightful. Um, These passages for this week and next week are some pretty heavy passages. I think they're really beautiful and really good, but they're pretty heavy. And so we did take a break uh, last week to talk about identity in Christ, not just for mothers, but for all of us. What does it mean to embrace our identity in Christ? And so we're diving back into the gospel of Matthew today. I do want to give a heads up. If you have children, Uh, who have not been introduced to the concept of sexuality or lust or pornography, um, then this would be a good time to go ahead and get them set up with some other resources. We have resources available on our website. Also, if you're watching live, we have on the uh, Kids Resources tab um, some ways to engage kids in God's Word in ways that are age-appropriate for them. So um, if, if those concepts feel uncomfortable for you, Uh, I get that. Uh, Join the club if as you heard the reading of the scripture you felt some unsettled kind of feelings. Uh, Jesus is intending to push into uncomfortable places but he's not doing it to shame anybody. He's not doing it to condemn anybody. Uh, We kind of start with this foundational belief that Jesus entered into the brokenness of this world to meet us in our brokenness, to cleanse us from our shame, to forgive us of our sins, and to offer us a really beautiful way to life. So uh, my hope, our hope, is in this passage what we'd see is a really challenging but beautiful and inspiring vision from Jesus, a vision that he's offering us for a way to understand human sexuality in a way that leads to flourishing lives. And so we're going to pray that his spirit would do that, and uh, would you join me praying that the Spirit of God would work in our lives as a community. Um, Jesus, we need you today desperately. Um, We need you in our lives, and our hearts, to remind us of your love and your grace, but also to show us a better way, uh, where we have, as individuals or as a culture, embraced really distorted visions and versions of human sexuality. Would you challenge us, but would you also change us? Would you transform us by your love, by your grace, by your power, uh, to see your beauty, your grace, and to see a vision of life that leads to thriving, flourishing human beings? that are experiencing dignity and love and honor in your world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Pretty much every year I will take time to look at the newest version of the best places to live. So every year there are different um, rankings that come out about the best places to live in the U.S. And the reason why I do that every year is mostly uh, to feel better about myself and to feel good about Denver because Denver is an awesome place. Place to live. Um, This year, yet again, Denver was towards the top. Denver was ranked the number two best place to live in the US, right behind Austin, Texas, which just feels weird. I want to say it's a really objective thing because I love where it puts Denver, but behind Austin feels weird. Maybe it's the barbecue. Um, Every time I make fun of Denver barbecue, though, I get like 50 emails and people that are frustrated, but nobody should argue. Austin barbecue, Kansas City barbecue is just better. But anyway, Denver's this this great place to live. And so you can look at these things. Now the issue is in a situation like this or a season like this, so many of the things that make Denver such a great place to live, the restaurants and the bars and the cocktail shops and the the ways to, places to hang out in the city, so many of those things aren't available right now. Um, So I get that. And maybe if they did like a, a pandemic version of the best places to live, it would be, number one would be like Antarctica with all the hip places to hang out, and all the super cool COVID-free scientists that you could socialize with. Um, So maybe Antarctica is like number one right now. Whatever the case may be, you can look at these rankings and understand how your city stacks up with other cities, and it's just fascinating. I saw one of these a few years ago, and it was ranking cities according to the seven deadly sins. So looking at things like pride, and envy, and greed, and gluttony, and wrath, and, and lust, and, and can you guess what city was ranked the number one most lustful city? And it wasn't Vegas, surprisingly. No, it was our beloved Denver ranked number one most lustful city. The ranking was more or less based on contraceptive sales per capita, which, you know, is, is an interesting way to assess those things. But what it was saying is Denver, with all of its young professionals, is a very sexually active city. It's a a very sexually active city, especially sex, not in the context of marriage, but kind of a sexually free and sexually active city. And however you might think about that, um, we know that sex is designed by God, sex itself is really good, but I don't think many people would argue with the fact that Denver and our nation as a whole Celebrate an approach to sexuality that is dehumanizing, degrading, that often leads to the objectification of people, and it's really unhealthy. But there are ways where we have embraced that and settled in and normalized distorted views of sexuality that are really toxic and destructive. And in this passage, Jesus is entering into that reality, a reality that was broken even in his own context in the first century in the Middle East. He's entering into that reality, saying, I have a better way. There's a better approach to human sexuality than the approach that's been embraced and adopted by most civilizations and cultures throughout history. And that's what he's gonna offer us in this passage. It's not a list of rules, but he's offering us a better way, a way where human beings experience honor and dignity as they live into God's beautiful design for human sexuality. A design that was created by God to help us understand what covenant intimacy is like, what it means to experience intimacy inside the safety of a covenant relationship. And so that's what he's speaking to in this passage. He's offering his disciples who are coming to him for forgiveness and hope and transformation a better way to life, a better way to sexuality in particular. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at two major areas in this this passage. We're going to look at first how he talks about this reality, that our hearts are bent away from God's beautiful design for sexuality. He's stating that just as a reality. Our hearts are bent away from God's beautiful design for sexuality. And then he's going to offer us a way forward. And so if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up. We're in Matthew chapter five. We're just going to read uh, verse 27 to start, 27 and 28. And we'll talk about it for a few moments. Here's what he says. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit Adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Um, he's, He's doing a similar thing to what he had done in the previous passage on anger, where he's taking a commandment from the Ten Commandments, in this case, the seventh commandment: thou shalt not commit. Adultery, like don't commit adultery. Don't have sex with a person who is not your spouse or have sex with a person who is somebody else's spouse. And in the Ten Commandments, what God is doing is He's giving the people of Israel a a guide, instructions, or wisdom for what flourishing life looks like. And He's offering a version or a vision of sexuality that honors sex inside of the covenant of a marriage. And what Jesus is saying is that command to not commit adultery could be and had been kind of reduced to a behavioral prohibition. So don't do this thing. Like no matter what's going on in your heart, no matter what you want or what you desire, as long as you don't go out and have sex with somebody who's not your spouse or have sex with somebody else's spouse, then then you're good. And he's saying that that's not what God's law was intended to be. It was intended to aim deeper. And so he takes it deeper. He says, you've you've heard that commandment, but I'm going to take it deeper. I'm going to bring it into your heart and intensify it because I want you to understand the full vision for human flourishing that he's offering for the people of his kingdom. And so what he says in this passage is he says, I say to you, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Now he's saying, he's not saying that everyone who is tempted to look at a person with lustful intent, he's not saying anyone who's attracted to another human being who's not their spouse, he's not saying that you can't appreciate beauty, he's not speaking of those things. He's actually really careful in the words he says. He says everyone who looks, and the word could be translated stares at, looks intently at, fixates on a woman with the intent in order to desire her lustfully, in order to lustfully desire her, has already committed adultery in his heart. What he's saying is when you look at another human being with the intention of gratifying or entertaining your own sexual desires, you've already turned away from the beauty of God's design. Way way before adultery has happened, way before a marriage vow is broken, when there are things in your own heart that you're looking at another human being and instead of approaching them with honor and dignity, you're objectifying them and treating them as an object to gratify or entertain your own sexual appetite. You've already turned from the goodness and the beauty of what God has designed human flourishing in sexuality for. You've already, you've already turned away from it. So he's stating that as a reality. As a reality. And it's a reality that, that is is supposed to push on all of us. He's taking it out of this sort of external behavioral realm and bringing it into our heart saying, we live in a context, in a world, and we have hearts that are bent away from God's design. Now God's design for sexuality is is really, really good. Uh, It's really beautiful. Jesus was there for the creation of the world. The whole world was created through him and by him and for him. He designed the human body In all of its capacities, in all of its sexual capacities, he designed the human body and its ability both to give pleasure and receive pleasure sexually, and he designed that to be really, really good. That sex is a gift of God to be enjoyed, and it's a really, really good gift. But it was designed to be enjoyed inside of the safety of a covenant marriage, It was designed to be enjoyed in a place where you could be naked and unashamed, where you could give of yourself fully and freely for the pleasure of another and another could give of themselves fully and freely for your pleasure in the context of sexual intimacy in a way that is beautiful and powerful and good. And that's God's design for human sexuality. There's a whole book of the Bible that celebrates God's design. It's called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. In the Hebrew Old Testament, that that title could be translated, the greatest song in the world. The best song ever is a song that is celebrating in a very erotic and romantic way the goodness of human sexuality. And Jesus upholds that. And what he's doing in this passage isn't kind of trying to be a stingy, curmudgeony kind of like um, person that's pushing away from like sex or joy or pleasure. He's actually fighting for the full dignity and beauty and glory of it in a way that would uphold human dignity and lead to human flourishing. So he's fighting against the bent and distorted versions of that that have creeped and pervaded our society in so many devastating ways. And it had devastated his society, and it's continued to devastate societies and people and communities and families and individuals for the history of our world. And Jesus is offering a better way. He's offering a better way. He's saying your heart, when it's bent away from God's design, leads to pain and destruction. When you objectify another human being, instead of giving yourself to somebody that you're in covenant relationship with for their pleasure and them giving themselves to you for your pleasure and enjoying that reciprocal intimacy, when you treat somebody as an object and you use them to gratify yourself in this sort of self-seeking, self-promoting, other-destroying, other-degrading way, you've turned away from God's good design. And that reality has creeped its way into our society in so many devastating and destructive ways. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to pay attention and to see that. Now, there are ways in our society that we have begun to, we have begun to to push away and to resist and to fight against sexual misconduct in the workplace, sexual harassment in the workplace and in the public sphere. And I think that's a really good thing. And we need to be a people that are continuing to do that, to fight for the dignity of women, that women wouldn't be objectified in the workplace or in the public sphere with, with glances and comments and, and, and requests or demands that would be so destructive that some uh, of you have experienced in really painful ways. But But it's It's crazy to think about how we've done that publicly, and at the same time, we have settled into and kind of embraced a private understanding of sexuality that creates a very dysfunctional, very corrupted, very toxic environment. And so we've embraced the reality of lust, or this longing for somebody, and this seeking to use somebody else for your own sexual satisfaction, even if it's privately, as as a kind of acceptable or normal thing. And it's so destructive. We see this celebrated in TV shows. Think about whatever your favorite TV shows are and what do they think about and celebrate and promote with respect to human sexuality. You see it celebrated in movies and in film. You see it in apps, whether it's social media and just the ease with which you can move from an app like Instagram, where you could share pictures with your family and friends, to to actually using images of other people to actually gratify your own sexual desire. Apparently there's things called like TikTok, which I don't understand, and Snapchat, which I think is now old, I don't know. But these are like things that people are using and they're using these things to actually look at images of other human beings. Children of God created in his image and using them to gratify unhealthy sexual desires. And it's really destructive. It's really destructive. Not to mention the fact that the pornography industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry, makes more money than streaming services like Netflix and gets more views than things like Twitter and Netflix combined, that pornography and the pornography industry is no longer kind of set alongside I-70 at these like random stops scattered throughout the kind of like the Midwest. And it's no longer scattered in, you know, perpetually dark clubs that are scattered around our city. But the pornography industry has made its way into homes where it's set up shop on our devices, on our computers, on our TVs, and is destroying families, destroying children, destroying men and women. And this is the world that Jesus is entering into. He's saying, "This world where we tolerate these things in our own hearts and where we think it's healthy or normal or something that we just kind of have to have to settle into." He's saying it's not the way it's supposed to be. There is a better way. There's a better way. When we embrace these things as normal, we are embracing something that is so destructive, not just for the the person that's being objectified, but for the person that is doing the lusting. There are things happening, even in the human brain, that are so destructive and so harmful and can have have such long-lasting effects. And Jesus is saying, there is a better way. There's a better way. And he's actually speaking into it in a way that ought to push on all of us, right? Like if he just says, don't commit adultery, and I'm just going to ratify that, which he does. It's not a good thing. It's, a, it's an evil thing to do. He doesn't just say that. He takes it to a level that should be pushing on all of us. And he doesn't do that so we'll say, hey, this is just normal. He does it to lead us to our need for a savior, our need for a different way, our need for someone to transform and to change our hearts. And so that's what Jesus then shifts into. He says, if you're looking at people like this, everyone who is, which is is so much of the world, everyone who's bent away from God's design, which is in some respect, all of us, if you're doing that, I have a a better way for you. And, And then he says this in verse 29. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Uh, so he's, he's taking it really seriously, obviously. Uh, he's not saying like, hey, it's not a big deal. Everybody wrestles, everybody struggles, but kind of like do your best and, and try hard. Uh, but it's not a, a big deal. He doesn't say that at all. He's actually arguing for us to take really radical steps To move away from this. He's he's calling for us to take radical and sacrificial steps to fight for the beauty of God's design. To take radical and sacrificial steps to fight for the beauty of God's design. And there's a, a story, many of you know it, there's a whole movie called 127 Hours about Aaron Ralston. Aaron Ralston was from Boulder. He was a young man who had this ambition of climbing all of Colorado's 14ers in the winter, being the first one to, I think, to solo climb all of Colorado's 14ers in the winter. And uh, and it was in 2003 that he was can- uh, canyoneering in Utah. And on this trip to Utah, uh, he was going through these slot canyons and fell down and dislodged a boulder and got stuck between the canyon walls and the boulder with his arm. And and so he was in this situation. He was sipping on water. He tried to chip away at the boulder. He tried to do different things. He was kind of looking and thinking about his own life and eventually after 127 hours got to a point where he realized that the only way to save his life would be to cut off his arm. And so the story is graphic. He took his little utility pocket knife and cut through his flesh and cut through his muscle and broke his bone and severed his own arm and then rappelled down a 65-foot sheer rock face and hiked out of the canyon where he met some other people that were hiking that eventually got him help. And, and his story's powerful. And when he tells his story, he says, I didn't lose my arm, I gained my life. And that's what he's, that's what he's saying. He's actually saying that you, you can get to a point where when your own life is at risk, when, when this is a matter of life and death, that you're willing to take sacrificial radical steps to spare your life. And that's what Jesus is, is getting at here. Now, he's not, he's not arguing or he's not saying literally you should, you should pluck out your eye or you should cut off your arm. That's not what he's saying at, at all. Uh, I've heard a couple of pastors say if, if he was actually kind of like advocating for self-mutilation, uh, he, he could have mentioned a more relevant body part. All right, if he was actually saying, hey, cut off a certain body part to protect yourself against the sin, there's probably a more relevant body part that that he could have mentioned, which again, sounds ridiculous, but that was a real thing in their day. There was a whole kind of people group named eunuchs uh, who had severed off their genitals to protect against sexual sin. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not what he's saying. Um, He's arguing that we should take sacrificial and radical steps to actually fight for God's good design. That when we don't take those steps, when we embrace lust and sexually deviant approaches to life, when we embrace those as normal, we're leading towards our own destruction and the destruction of others. These things eat us alive from the inside out. And when you don't take significant steps to push away from them, it will tear you up and lead you on a path to destruction. And so Jesus is saying, for the sake of your own soul, but also for the sake of others. At the whole kind of like focus of the Sermon on the Mount is this call to love others, to love other people. And what he's saying is when we take sacrificial steps to not just fight for our own salvation in a sense, which is not what he's arguing for some sort of salvation by works, but we're saying like this is destroying me and I'm going to take sacrificial and radical steps to avoid this own plight to destruction. He's also saying take sacrificial steps to love and to serve other people. That we don't want to treat other people as objects. We don't want to take image bearers of God and degrade their humanity and objectify them and uphold an industry and a culture that is so destructive and harmful. He's saying you need to be willing to say that is not okay for my heart. And what he's saying is for my people and my kingdom to honor the dignity and uphold the value of the children of God is something that my people need to sacrificially fight for. And so what does that look like? it looks like first being honest. Being honest about the brokenness in your own life. Being honest about where your heart is bent. All of our hearts are bent. But being really honest about it. And when you're not honest with God or with other people about the areas where your heart is bent, those broken areas begin to attach to your life and come out in your life in really destructive ways. So to be honest. Uh, Second, to get help. Uh, there are so many things related to addiction, related to sexual sin and really challenging, challenging situations and, and to get help, to talk to uh, a pastoral leader in our church, to reach out and get professional counseling, but to get help, to say I care enough about this that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get help. I'm going to admit that there's a brokenness in me and I, and I need help. And, and the third is to be wise, to, to take precautions, to, to be thoughtful, to not put yourself in situations where there are temptations, to be thoughtful with how you use your phone and how you use your screens. And to, If you're going to be in a situation where, they, where you know that there are temptations, to, to enlist a friend to, to know, hey, I'm going to be traveling. I'm going to be in this situation. I'm going to be up late working on this, on this paper. I'm going to be whatever it is for you to actually know that you can actually take precautions and enlist people to help you. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what we most need is we need Jesus. And that's what this whole Sermon on the Mount is is teaching us. He's not trying to lift up this bar that's unattainable to to condemn or to lead to shame. He's saying, This is my vision for life. And, And to help us see, we fall short of that and we need a Savior. And that's what Jesus came to be. He came to meet us in our brokenness, in our failure. In our shame, in our guilt, in our struggles, in in our stumbling, he came to meet us right there to show us the love of God, to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us of our shame, and to offer to us transformation. Uh, Jesus is inviting us in this passage. He's not pushing into shame or condemnation. He's inviting us to come to him with our brokenness, with our guilt, with our struggle, with our helplessness, with our inability, and say, God, I need you. And what he shows us is beautiful covenant love, a love where he would lay down his life to forgive us, to wash us, to cleanse us, and to transform us through his grace, to transform us through his love, to transform our very hearts from the inside out. And that's what he's calling for us today. He's inviting us to come to him with all of our brokenness, to experience forgiveness and cleansing and hope and transformation. So let's pray that he'd do that in our community. Um, Jesus, we come right now and we ask for help. All around um, our church, we are a, a people who are broken. And we know that you love us and that you see us. And so I pray even in our brokenness, you would, meet us with your grace and with your love. That you meet us with your grace and your love. That where people feel challenged or convicted, they would look to the cross and they would see the depth of your love for us. That they'd see the beauty of your mercy towards us and that they'd see hope. And So would you meet us in our failures, meet us in our brokenness, and would you change us to be a people who live into the beauty and the goodness of what you've designed for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.